0: Hello, Ann Wild. Hello, John. Thank you for uh, thank you for coming on Mormon Stories.
1: Thank you for asking me.
0: It's a it's a pleasure to be here in your home, um, and I've waited a long time to interview you. So it's <laughs> a, it's, it's,
1: well, a, I'm glad we were finally able to work it out.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, uh, the way I kind of wanted to begin um, was to do a quick overview of the history of polygamy within the LDS Church and, and beyond through your eyes. Okay. Because um, I assume that up to a certain point, um, members of the fundamentalist, uh, uh, fundamentalist Mormons or um, you know, members of the LDS Church sort of believe the same history, mm-hmm. at least to a certain extent. So for our listeners who aren't up to speed on, on that history, would you mind taking us through um, you know, LDS and Mormon polygamy history through mm-hmm. your eyes?
1: Okay, well, initially, of course, it was a Bible doctrine. We're taking it back into the Old Testament with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Moses, a lot of the yearly prophets had plural wives. And so when Joseph Smith was um, about to restore the gospel uh, directly from the Lord, I believe, one of the principles and ordinances that was revealed to him was that of plural marriage. We prefer to call it celestial plural marriage because that determines... How you live it on a higher plane, rather than just plural marriage or polygamy, as the world might see it. Um, in the early 1830s, apparently, he did receive a revelation, which is now recorded in Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it was to the fact that, um, or the effect that, <coughs> Joseph Smith asked why um, some of the early prophets had more than one wife. And God's answer to him was that it was an eternal principle and that he um, was commanded to live it and also reveal it to the other leaders and members of the church over a period of time. So it continued on in the church um, for many years. It did not, or it continued on as a law of the priesthood, I should say, for many years. In 1852, after Brigham Young led the saints out here to the valley, Uh, It was voted on and accepted by church members as a law of the church, a tenant of their belief. And so um, from then until 1890, it was actually an established practice and belief of the LDS church. Because of a lot of persecution from the government and uh, threats of taking away church property and personal property and so forth, uh, they issued what's called a manifesto, which I'm sure most people are familiar with, was really a press release. Uh, fundamentalist Mormons don't really consider it a revelation because it started out, Thus saith the Lord. And we're not aware of too many revelations that start out with Thus saith, or with uh, to whom it may concern. So they uh, issued this press release uh, to the government with the idea that they would know that we were going to try as a church to discontinue that practice so that the persecution would stop and so that eventually we could become a state. So in 1890, even though the Manifesto was issued at that time, um, there were a lot of the leaders of the church that continued living plural marriage, taking new wives, performing other plural marriages. And so it wasn't until really 1904 when the second Manifesto came along that there were teeth put in that first Manifesto. Um, so we believed then that it was the law of the priesthood Uh, At the time, Joseph Smith had it revealed to him, and it is continued as a law of the priesthood until contemporary, until today. It was a law of the church from 1852 to 1890, and then it became a law of the priesthood, uh, continually, but back in the uh, responsibility of a priesthood ordinance after the church gave it up, as one of their beliefs. So, Even though Section 132 is still in the Doctrine and Covenants, and we still believe it's an eternal principle, uh, we understand why the Church gave it up, and um, we are very careful in our regard and our respect for the LDS Church. We feel like they do a lot of good, and um, even though they have given up or changed a lot of those original doctrines, we feel like they're still... um, you know, a lot of very fine people in the church, and we respect and honor the organization. So that was a
0: that was a great overview. Um, thank you for for giving that. If you don't mind, I'd love to delve a little bit deeper into the actual practice of polygamy in the early church, to the extent that you're comfortable or or knowledgeable about it. Okay. So, as I understand it, they're saying that they, they say that Joseph Smith received the revelation maybe around 1831. Uh-huh. And that the first um, potential wife that he took on was Fanny uh, Aldrich. What, mm-hmm. what do you know about? Louisa
1: Beeman. What do you the know? About,
0: how, how did do you know anything about Fanny Aldrich? Some people say that that wasn't a really good example of how polygamy ought to have happened. What do you know about that story? Well,
1: I understand she was uh, staying in the home, kind of helping Emma with the chores, and. Um, it was a secret from Emma, and of course that's not the ideal, is to have it be a secret. In some cases that has to happen if the first wife is not in agreement. Um, but there's so many different ways of living this. There's not a recipe book that says this is the way you live through a marriage. There wasn't then, and there's not now. It has to depend on the family and their relationship with the Lord and what they feel impressed to do, as long as people are treated fairly. Um, I think, and I've read some journals and other uh, histories of the church, where it seems to me like the way it was started was that Joseph Smith would call one man (coughs) into an office or uh, Emma recalls uh, seeing them walking along by the banks of the Mississippi River and he would teach them the law of plural marriage and then ask them to go into that lifestyle. So um, it was done very secretly at first Uh, Gradually, of course, it got out and many of the people living in the areas surrounding where the Mormons were found out that they were living that lifestyle. They were persecuted because of it. And so it's kind of a lot that way today. It's comparable because in many cases, plural families do live this principle very quietly. In some cases, the neighbors probably don't even know. Uh, If the wives aren't all living in the same house, he might visit and then go to another house and visit another plural wife and the neighbors probably just think he's away a lot. So there's all different ways of living it.
0: And so when we have a rigid conception of what polygamy ought to be like, sort of taking traditional American monogamous families and trying to say that it, it, with Joseph it should have looked as much like that as possible just with a couple <coughs> extra wives, that's probably unrealistic or maybe even unfair.
1: Well, there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of differences. Naturally, after it became a law of the church, there was kind of a pattern that was suggested. Orson Pratt had 27 rules that he thought would apply and would be a a good guide for plural families. Um, There was a time when uh, the order of things was that the prospective husband would go to the father, uh, the church president would be involved in the decision, and they'd go to the girl, and get permission along the way but as the church grew and then of course the church gave it up then those that uh, pattern was not continued you just did the best you could in 1886 John Taylor received the revelation from uh, from the Lord we believe as fundamentalist Mormons and in that revelation it said that men must use their free agency in these matters because uh, knowing God knowing that the church would eventually give it up he provided a way for that to be kept alive like I mentioned, as a priesthood law. So you, you mentioned
0: earlier that under some rare circumstances, that a husband may even have to keep um, polygamy from their from their wife, uh, and not not let her know about it. And those who have read about Emma and Joseph know that 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 might have happened with them. How right. in the world could a could a woman or even a a, a Bel- faithful person who believes in just being honest. How, how do you grapple with that? Uh,
1: well, hopefully that's the minority of cases. Sure. That's not uh, the way it should be. In fact, in section 132, it talks about the law of Sarah, which is that the first wife gives any subsequent wives to her husband. It's with her knowledge and consent. And the actual ceremony shows her placing the hand of the the current or the forthcoming wife into the hand of her husband. It's part of the the ceremony. There are cases, though, where I am aware that the first wife is so adamantly against it that um, that in that case the husband can be exempt from the law of Sarah, which means he does not need to get her permission, but he um, goes ahead and lives it. You know, without that, but that is not the ideal.
0: And as a woman, how I mean, how would you, would you would you you'd probably be sad if you found out that your husband was doing that and you didn't know about it? How do you sort of grasp the morality of that or the ethics or I, well, I know it's an exception. Well, a lot of
1: things have to be done in secret, and if you do not go along with a principle that means everything to the husband, then usually the way I have understood that the husband will say, "Okay, I believe this doctrine." I want to live it. I would like you to live it with me. But I cannot let you make that decision for me, which I feel uh, affects my exaltation. So you open the door for that wife. You encourage her. You try and help her understand it to the point where she'll accept it. But after a period of time, and there's no definite period of time, but you can see, if the husband can see, that she is definitely not going to give her consent then he may have to do it without her knowledge.
0: Right. And um, so, following along that lines with with, um, Joseph's practice of polygamy, um, a a lot of people, when they read about the Nauvoo time, uh, you know, have some confusion. I, I growing up, was sort of taught that the reason why Mormons practiced polygamy was because all the men were being killed off on the frontier (laughs) by those who were persecuting us. So all these women were left without mm-hmm. spouses. And so polygamy was instilled to help uh, give these women a home and, and comfort, etc. That's
1: what Mark e. Peterson taught in his book, Way of the Master. He just said it's kind of called them welfare wives. But that is not the way we perceive it at all. We perceive it as an eternal principle, an exalting principle. And without living that in a righteous way, you will not get to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. It has nothing to do with numbers.
0: Okay, and so, so having grown up with that understanding myself, then when I found out that a lot of the women that Joseph married were sixteen, eighteen, fourteen-year-olds, that sort of threw that theory out out the window. And mm-hmm. I think, I think studies have shown that polygamous marriages tend to marry a lower age than the age of the husband, not a not a higher age. And so. Um, so it's probably fair to say that, that a lot of the polygamous marriages that happened in the early church were teenage women. Is that right?
1: Oh, I think some of them were. I don't know what the percentage was, but I do know that a lot of them uh, maybe were widows. And, uh, or maybe their husband uh, had left the Mormon church and she was without a husband and had small children. And so uh, one of the other leaders or adult male members of the church would marry her to provide for her and her children. So it's not always just that they married young wives, right. although I understand it that did ha- that did happen
0: so what is your what is your perception on uh, on the, the a man taking a, a really young additional wife is you know how do you grapple with that some people say oh that's inappropriate I know that there's a different context between today and one hundred and fifty years ago but what are your thoughts on on that practice of you know
1: well, t- I think in the early days of the church, a woman was or a young girl was more mature at an earlier age. Uh, The older sisters in the family usually helped take care of the younger kids in the family and so they and they didn't have malls and other things to hang out in where they remained I think at a lower maturity level. Um, Today I believe that and we encourage people in our lifestyle to wait till the girls are 18 which is the legal age in the state of Utah. Um, that is just, to me, it's common sense. Now, there may be occasions where there should be an exception to that, and that may be up to the family, but since we have been working with the Attorney General's office, and they, that law is on the books in the state of Utah, that you're 18 for a legal marriage, or any marriage for that matter, um, the law was changed recently. It used to be 14 with parental consent and 16 is a legal marriage. They raised that a few years ago. Now it's 16 with parental consent and 18 for a legal marriage. We have to understand in our lifestyle that that re- applies only to legal marriages. The first marriage that we have is usually a legal marriage. The subsequent marriages are priesthood sealings or religious commitment ceremonies. And that that law of parental consent does not apply to that type of a religious ceiling, only to the legal marriages. I see.
0: And and I I imagine the legal age for a woman to be married back in the eighteen thirties and forties was fourteen. Do you have any idea what the?
1: Um, I think it was around fourteen, but I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. I know it was earlier or younger than it is now.
0: Okay. Um, uh, another huge issue that that a lot of LDS people are struggling with today is this notion of polyandry. The notion that. Uh-huh. At times, Joseph Smith apparently married women who were, at the time, married to other living men who were in marriages with other men. Right. Are you aware of that, and how sure. have you worked through that yourself?
1: Well, I, I read Todd Compton's book, In Sacred Loneliness, and I realized as I read through, and I had heard up an, even before I read his book, that he did marry women that were already married. Um, I have a couple of things that have uh, helped me in understanding this. One is I have a strong testimony that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. That is the foundation for my beliefs. I believe too that he probably knew before he came down in this life. He knew in the preexistence which women were to be. He would to offer to be a wife in his family doesn't necessarily mean they would join his family, but I think he somehow knew in the pre that he was to offer them that opportunity. So, knowing those two things, I think he went about living that principle, and um, he, even though it's hard for people to understand, and it's really hard in a, in a few ways for me to understand when they indeed were married to a righteous man already. But maybe he had a prior knowledge that we're not aware of. And so I don't criticize Joseph Smith for his living of plural marriage.
0: Right. Okay. Um, I would say that at least half half of the members of the LDS Church are completely unaware as to the circumstances that sort of led up to his to Joseph's martyrdom. Um, and how how relevant the polygamy question was in his eventual martyrdom. I would imagine that that's an important um, thing from your perspective, that it's it's at least part of what he died (coughs) for or was willing to die for. Can you tell us your understanding of what role polygamy or plural marriage played in the circumstances that led up to his martyrdom? Well,
1: that was one of the reasons that the saints were persecuted as much as they were, like they went from state to state. And in five different, four or five different states that the saints lived in, it was against state law to live plural marriage, but they lived it anyway. And so, because of the fact that they were perceived as lawbreakers and so forth, that was one of the reasons they were persecuted. However, polygamy is the most obvious and noticeable doctrine that the church had that where they were persecuted for. There were some other things too. One of them, Joseph Smith was a candidate for president. He read some of the Eastern papers, and he says, gee, I seem to be so popular, I'm afraid I might win. So I think the fact that there was a political issue there that uh, had something to do with his martyrdom, plural marriage, I think, certainly was one of them. I think uh, the fact that they were, at one time, the largest city in the state of Illinois before Chicago became really uh, a big city, uh, and they had a very one of the largest, if not the largest, military organization with the Nabu Legion. That was a threat. Um, I think there were so many things that were happening that the people outside the LDS church began to be intimidated and a little bit fearful about the amount of control that Joseph Smith had over this growing group of, of people in this church. So I think there were several reasons why um, the martyrdom came about.
0: Do you do you sort of agree that that at least some of the immediate circumstances were that that William Law who was a member of the first presidency at the time yeah. uh never liked the idea of polygamy didn't know about it for a while right. when he found out he
1: I'm, I'm sure he was one of uh, the people that brought this on I think uh John C Bennett I think the Law brothers the Higbies the Fosters there were several that were meeting secretly there's a story about the conspiracy of Nauvoo where Joseph Smith asked two young boys to go to this conspiratorial meeting, find out what was going on, and then report back to him, which they did, and they did it at the risk of their lives. So there were leaders in the church that absolutely were dead set against polygamy and felt like Joseph was living it incorrectly, and so they were conspiring to take his life.
0: And when, when William Law published the Nauvoo Expositor, one of the allegations was plural marriage. Right. And and is it fair to say that Joseph was worried that, that the awareness of, of polygamy would become too broad and it might lead to unbearable persecution, and that's why he ordered the destruction of the printing press?
1: Well, yeah, nobody likes to see themselves drunk through the mud, and that's what they were doing in this Nabu Expositor. They were revealing things that probably he didn't want the public to know. They were hard to under- to explain to people. I'm sure that was another thing that had something to do with it.
0: So you feel... It might have even been reasonable for him to order the destruction, to keep the peace and to protect the city, etc. You're
1: yeah, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. For, for you,
0: Joseph's a prophet, and so you're... And, and Not
1: that he was perfect. Right. He even said, he says, you believe in me when I speak as a prophet. Otherwise, when I speak as a man, consider it as such. And there were two two times that I'm aware of that he uh, issued a false prophecy. One was regarding going to Canada to get the copyright for the Book of Mormon. So uh, he was not perfect, but I think he was he was an excellent prophet. Yeah. I really do. I have a testimony of that. And he was the man that um, that God wanted to be there to restore the gospel.
0: One last question about Joseph's practice. Um, Do we know whether he cohabitated with his plural wives? Some people say they were just in spirit or in name only. They were spiritual wives, but not in every sense. I'm sure there were some
1: like that. Now, I know, I can't say I know. I feel in my heart and in my research that, yes, he did cohabit with some of them. Uh, And there is the account where he had a daughter, Josephine. So uh he and then there are evidences in journals where somebody says that Joseph and so and so one of his wives stayed in such and such a room in the house where they were. So there's pretty good evidence that yes he did cohabitate with at least some of them. With at least some.
0: Okay. So when when Brigham it, it oh one very important thing. I think it's pretty much fair to say that Joseph publicly denied ever practicing polygamy and that even when Emma was interviewed after all the LDS Church had left Illinois that she claimed that he never practiced polygamy and, th- and the whole reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints seemed to have been built on the foundation that polygamy was never practiced by Joseph and that in fact it was Brigham Young who started polygamy. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you reconcile the fact that he had to <laughs> be dishonest publicly about it? Um,
1: well, th- and, th- and frequently that's candid. the case when you're the leader of a church you say Uh, as much as you can publicly but there's a lot of things that you don't want the world to know and it's not really any of their concern however emma was actually a witness to his sealing to the partridge sisters and to the lawrence sisters the fact that she denied it later that was that was her decision she didn't want her children knowing that he lived that however joseph the oldest son and david the um i think it was david the youngest one uh, actually, made trips out to Salt Lake and talked to some of Joseph's plural wives, and they had to admit that he did live plural marriage. Um, so, um, whether or not he actually got up and said, "I'm a plural," I live plural marriage. I don't see that recorded anywhere, but he definitely lived it, and there's all kinds of evidence that he did. It did not start with Brigham Young. Brigham Young made the statement that I teach nothing save that Joseph Smith taught it to me first. He did enlarge upon some of the doctrines, like the temple ceremony and things like that. But um, most of the teachings came directly from Joseph Smith to Brigham Young, and he just carried them on.
0: Okay. And the fact that he felt like he had to deny it, you just see as a practical reality for living in a, in a harsh world.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure President Hinckley doesn't tell us everything that's going on in their quorum meetings. Uh, it's not... It's something that you'd say publicly. Well, Joseph Smith was in a very precarious position. He lived at a tough time when there was some, all this persecution going on. He would tell the people as much as he felt like he could, and the rest of it he had to keep quiet.
0: Okay. So, um, Brigham Young, you know, Joseph Smith um, was martyred. Um, there were a few years of uncertainty in the church, and then Brigham Young uh, brought, brought many of the Latter-day Saints out to Utah. Is there anything interesting about how polygamy evolved in terms of how it was lived, or how it was um, incorporated into the doctrines or teachings or, or structures of the church? Um, and, and one of the things I'll add, you know, th- a lot of people um, say that, that early LDS leaders actually taught that polygamy was not just a good thing to do; it was a requirement for it was exaltation. Was a requirement so for exaltation. Talk, talk about sort of the Brigham, Young, to Wilford Woodruff years okay. of polygamy in Utah.
1: Um, I recently put together a little book called An Essential for Exaltation and in that is a compilation of 33 quotes, scriptures and early um, experiences that said that a celestial plural marriage <coughs> excuse me, was essential to reach the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. That was a teaching in the church at the time that they accepted it. Um, let's see, I was going to say something else about that. Uh, it slipped my mind right now, but I do know that it was a very um, strong teaching and requirement in, oh, I know what I was going to say. <laughs> um, in 1882 there was a revelation that was given to John Taylor, I believe, and it said that he was to call Teasdale and Heber J. Grant, and I think one other person, to the one of the positions as a general authority, an apostle or an assistant or a 70. Uh, if they would conform and obey his law, meaning the law of plural marriage. So at that time, in the 1880s, it was a requirement to become a general authority, was to ha- live plural marriage. So it was very definitely emphasized.
0: And taught by by many that it was a requirement for exaltation. Right. Not just uh-huh. something good.
1: And I believe that today.
0: Um <laughs> Uh, but the Book of Mormon if you if you read the Book of Mormon it almost talks about plural marriage as something that is by design a temporary situation. Do you know the okay, scripture reference? Okay, in Jacob
1: to? 2. Um the whoever is talking Jacob or whoever I think it was. Um but you know when you read that whole chapter, one or two chapters surrounding that Jacob 2. Um he's talking to the people at that time and they were very wicked and they were abusing women and they were the women were calling upon the Lord in sorrow to take away this abuse and so forth that was happening and so God no longer required that from their hands because of the abuse. So yes, they were told to just have one wife at that time. However, we don't know what the leaders were doing then. Maybe they were taking wives just like Joseph Smith did and nothing was said about it publicly or on record. So I know people point to the Book of Mormon and say, yeah, but the Book of Mormon said, you only should have one wife. Well, you have to understand the situation and the circumstances surrounding that passage of Scripture.
0: Right, okay. So, um, lots of persecution ensued in in the Utah early, you know, late 19th century. Eventually, we had to come out and say, uh, we're going to stop the practice. But I think pretty much everyone acknowledges that between 1890, which is the manifesto that's in the LDS Church's uh, scriptures today, mm-hmm. and 1904, 1905, like you said, uh, not only were members of the church allowed to still perform polygamous marriages, but apostles and even maybe even members of first presidencies not only performed um, additional <coughs> polygamous ceremonies, but also some of them took on additional wives themselves. themselves right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ta- you know, what are your thoughts it, about
1: Well, it's kind of confusing for people to read that and try and figure it out, but I think they realized that it was a law of the priesthood and that they can continue living it as a law of the gospel, a law of the priesthood, even though it was no longer a law of the church. So with that information, which I'm sure they were aware of, they continued to live it until it just got to the point where it had to totally go underground and then that's where fundamentalist Mormonism came in starting at 1886 with John Taylor setting apart men to keep that principle alive separate from the church then it's just continued on down through today with priesthood being passed on and the right to perform that ceremony that ordinance outside the church.
0: So it sounds like you know what what do we know about john taylor's deliberations about whether or not to end it did he ever consider ending it what do we know about the, what uh-huh. do we know about the deliberations that wilford woodruff experienced um you know was there turmoil as they tried to decide what to do and what do we know about it
1: i'm sure there was um in fact it was uh, according to history and records uh, george q cannon was very concerned about it as well as a lot of the members of the church and the leaders uh, how much persecution should they go through for this principle? So they were considering a manifesto when John Taylor was president of the church. And George Q. brought him a manifesto of sorts and said, Will you take this up with the Lord and see if we should issue this? And so John Taylor did, and that's where this 1886 revelation came from. Uh, when he asked the Lord about whether or not to sign this manifesto, um, he the next morning he reported the answer claim clear and strong to him from the Lord. And it said, rather, he said, rather than sign that, I would rather have my tongue torn out of my mouth and my arm severed from my body. So he was adamant in the fact that he would not compromise with the government. And then there were there was one revelation <clears throat> that John Taylor received that um, trying to think, I think that was in eighteen eighty nine. And in that revelation, it said, make no more compromises with the government. So, you know, the Lord was trying to prepare the way for the leaders, and especially John Taylor, to remain firm in the belief of that doctrine. In fact, it's kind of interesting. The whole time that the government was passing some of these laws against plural marriage, like uh, the Edmonds uh, Edmunds Law, the Edmonds-Tucker Moral Law, God was making, was revealing things to Um, Wilford Woodruff received a couple of them himself, and then John Taylor received most of them. During that decade, between 1880 and 1890, um, these revelations were to encourage the saints and help them to be valiant and stand by the doctrines and not compromise.